In their own words, is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you. I think that when we create recordings by Black composers, historical Black composers, you know, music that's been languishing and hasn't been heard, and we're able to um, revive their, their work and their lives and their stories. What we're doing is not just preserving their work, but we are creating a new definition of what American music is. That's Laura Downs, and this is the In Their Own Words podcast. Interviews and conversations with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. Laura is one of the most exciting performers, composers, and music curators on the national art scene today. She connected with Penn State music education professor emeritus Dr. Tony Leach in February of 2023. Greetings, everyone. We're honored to be able to introduce our special guest for today's chat, Laura Downs, concert pianist and uh, host of her own NPR series, uh, which is entitled Amplify. And we're just going to spend time today engaging her in aspects of her professional journey, her thoughts about music, her thoughts about encounters with others, colleagues, collaborators in music in order to understand even more proficiently her impact on American music. Welcome, Lara, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with a, uh, a thought that I use to kind of describe myself. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and here's the quote. Music chose me, therefore I embrace it. Mm-hmm. Music chose me. I can tell you exactly the moment I remember. Hmm. I was probably three. <gasps> <laughs> and I'm sitting at the piano. It's one of those, like, baby music classes. And I'm sitting at the piano, and the teacher is showing me how it works. And there's this little boy who is not so into all of this, and he was crawling around on the floor, and she had to, like, pause what she was doing with me and deal with him. And I just remember thinking, how could he not be so excited by this? Mm. That's really, it's one of my very first memories. Mm-hmm. And I have never not wanted to play the piano. There were days when I didn't want to practice the piano. Um, but it's always been my, I don't know, my, my, my home. Yeah. Not only a safe place, but a familiar place. And I will say, too, in my childhood, it was, it was kind of rough going. My father was sick for a lot of years when I was small. He died when I was nine. Mm. Life was chaotic. Life didn't feel very safe. The music felt safe and steady and beautiful and important. Was your mother a musician? No. So no where does musician. this come from? Well, and I, there are three of us. I've got two sisters. We're all musicians. So wow. at a certain point, my mom started doing a like an ancestry search, and she found some great uncle back in the old country who was a violinist. But I'm not sure that that explains it. My dad loved music. You know, you always have to wonder who's a musician, who's not a musician. Like, if you never encounter it, you don't know. I think that my dad was intensely musical. Um, 
And certainly a lot of my introduction as a listener came from him. That's the other thing I remember from, you know, when he was alive, was sitting and listening to music with him. Mm-hmm. So it's somewhere. It's somewhere in in the DNA. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I know that you currently uh, are located on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Has the West Coast always been home home for you, or has the family moved around? We moved around a lot. So I grew up in San Francisco. And then when I was in my teens, we actually took off for what was going to be one year in Paris, and it turned into almost a decade of living in various European cities and studying and playing and, um, you know, just immersion in the tradition, which was really wonderful, a little crazy. Then I came back to this country, and I was in New York for a while, and then ended up for just sort of, you know, well, husband reasons, um, back in California. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you think about your time in Europe, Mm-hmm. Particularly, you said you you were studying. Is there a particular teacher or a setting institution that comes roaring back? So, growing up in California, brown kids, homeschooled, ah. classical music, weirdos, right? And then when we went to Europe, there was this feeling of weirdly homecoming, just because of the proximity to the tradition of classical music. So even though everything else was different, you know, language barrier, cultural differences, but the music made so much sense. So I remember that feeling of like, oh, there are other people who live like this and do this and prioritize this. Going and standing for, you know, the cheap seats, the cheap standing tickets actually at the opera with an endless line of other music students, things like that. And... Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? The different parts of yourself that can find themselves in various situations. Mm-hmm. Did your were your sisters as engaged musically once you were in Europe as you were? Oh yeah, yeah yeah. So um, there's me, and then there's a middle sister who's a cellist, and then the youngest is a pianist. Ah. So it was a lot of noise. In the house. <laughs> <laughs> and then my youngest sister and I, for a while there, oh, for a while there, there was a whole thing with matching dresses and playing together as ah. like the Down sisters. Yes. And um, there was, that kind of stopped when I broke a piano one day because <laughs> we had been rehearsing endlessly the Mozart to piano concerto. We had a performance in Vienna and it was just too much and too much sibling stuff. Mm-hmm. And I stood up and I like pounded my, my fist down on the music desk that like you can't talk to me like that, but it was one of those antique pianos with the carved music desk, and it just split it out. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I asked uh, this question uh, to to Delfeo Marsalis, mm. who was here several months ago. Again, coming from a, a musical family, and uh, was surprised to find out, even though his father was, of course, the premier musician, it was. His mother, their mother, that really insisted that Mm. the boys continue to pursue and be serious about their pursuit of music. And um, I said, well, was there always practicing in the house? He said, no. We we did that stuff at school, Mm -hmm. a little bit of playing at home, blah, 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 around New Orleans. But uh, they kind of figured out ways to kind of stay 
out of each other's mm-hmm. way as they grew up and yeah. are now these gigantic musicians. Yeah. That's something that always makes me jealous when I hear about the Marsalis family or like John Baptiste family, these New Orleans families where you could you could make music everywhere. And it was just like part of daily life. It was very different. You know, it was very sort of an isolating, bubbly thing mm. in our lives. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. So then piano has been a primary music-making entity for you. Are you a singer? Are you a composer? Are you a violinist? You do some things on the side <laughs> that they're not paying you for these days. <laughs> I sing in the car in the shower. Um, I wrote an opera when I was seven. Um, it was based on Charlotte's Web. And then I didn't write music for a long time. And now I write little things, and of course I don't call myself a composer. But actually, last year... The Knoxville Symphony was doing this commissioning project. They're asking lots of composers, including, you know, big composers like Jennifer Higdon, to write very short pieces. Mm-hmm. And uh, they reached out, and I said, oh, why do I don't do that? <laughs> and they said, no, well, why don't you try? And I wrote this little piece, and it was so fun. And, um, and it was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess, I guess most musicians are composers, mm-hmm. whether they... Admit it or not. Mm-hmm. Do you have what I call a soundscape that's always happening in your brain? You can turn it off when you need to, but at other times you just let it flow, whatever that is. And to be specific, is it piano repertoire? Is it orchestral repertoire? Is it pop music? Hmm. What What's happening on the inside? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> a mess. <laughs> I played Gershwin's I Got Rhythm mm. with the violinist Daniel Hope two weeks ago. That thing has been in my ear ever since. And then I was with some friends a few nights ago, and we were actually giving a talk about um, the future of music. Mm. And one of my colleagues, the conductor, Joseph Young, great conductor, and he he said the words, I hate history. He didn't mean it. What he meant was like, I don't want to be stuck in the past. But then I started putting the words, I hate history, to the tune of I got rhythm. So then it just got worse. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it's like lots of different things filtering in, and I do tend to have little thing, little like hooks in my head. But mm-hmm. I, no, it's not piano music. No. No, that's... <laughs> that, I, my, my brain can be a... Vacation from piano music. <laughs> <laughs> your, you, you mentioned uh, with your colleagues a couple of nights ago this, this interesting discussion. What was the outcome of that? That's interesting. Yeah. Well, it was actually a panel at the oh. Sphinx Conference about oh, yes. um, programming. Yeah. Yes. I, was, I had curated this panel about the future of programming, curation. And so I had panel members who represent different sectors of the industry. So Joseph, and then there was um, James Muhammad from the USC Radio Group, somebody from the Philadelphia Orchestra. So really like education, um, presenting, media. I think we were all in agreement. I think, you know, this is just a complicated time. Mm -hmm. A time of really intense shift and how do you do that well and what's the proper speed at which to do that. And uh, we were talking a lot about like who we're doing it for. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that's been very much on my mind in the last, what is it now, getting to be three years, when institutions are trying to make change about 
you know, the music that's programmed and the way that it's presented. But then the question is, who are you presenting it to? So we were talking about the question of community. Who are the communities and how are we engaging with them? And are we, you know, is it omnidirectional, which it should be? It was a really interesting conversation. Um, an hour was not nearly long enough to have it. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the outcome is that all of us, no matter what place in the pipeline we have, whether we're on stage or on air or teaching or or listening, we all have to be so active right now to try to just really collaborate and and be effective and efficient. Yeah. It's been interesting reflecting over the past three years. I mean, I remember early 2020, things were rolling along as normal, but at the same time, you were hearing whisperings about something. Mm-hmm. Not quite sure what it was, because mm-hmm. even though it, the, the virus was probably here at the time, we didn't, we really didn't know. Or people that knew weren't giving the information that needed we needed. So I was uh, in Rochester for a conference, and I was in Norfolk, Virginia for another conference, and uh, I was not actually at Penn State at the time, which is really interesting to just think back. And then I'd gone to New York City to spend time with an alum who was in a uh, off-Broadway show. Mm. And he says, well, Dr. Leach, I've got to go in and do an interview, and I will call you, tell you where to meet me for dinner, and then we'll see the show. Or you'll see the show. Great. Fine. So just relax. Phone rang about 4 o'clock, and he says, Dr. Leach, um, Broadway is closed. I said, what are you talking about? He said, mm. Broadway is closed, and the stage manager says, clean out your lockers, and this is your final check. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, this is for real. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And so he took the train and came back, and we figured, let's just stay really local for now because who knows what's going to be going down. My point, where were you Hmm. when you realized that our world was about to shift in ways that we could not have anticipated? Yeah, I mean, I remember what you are talking about. There was that weirdly, in retrospect, it was a long time. Mm. I mean, it was a matter of weeks at least when... We were aware and somehow thought it was not going to touch us. Um, You know, it was in that city or it was, you know, going to be a matter of days or whatever. I don't know, magical thinking. But there was a day, I want to say it was March 9th, that um, the phone was ringing all day and just everything was getting canceled. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember the process of that was so debilitating because the magical thinking was still holding, right? So it would be one presenter... This was all coming through my management, right? They want to reschedule for next month. Okay, fine. And then, you know, no, they want to reschedule for next year. Uh, They're just canceling. And it just like you just felt everything crumbling. And uh, I remember (laughs) I had been quite tired. I had been on the road nonstop leading up to March. So I remember those first calls. I was like, yeah, I can get a break. I went out. This is California. I went out in the backyard and sat in the sun. And I was kind of happy. I'm going to have a vacation for a few weeks. And then, as everything just kept going, it was emotionally such a roller coaster. So, And then you also felt bad because this was a global tragedy and you were focusing on your own, you know, little thing. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think that's just how 
we operate. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. a tremendous feeling of loss. And then, too, as those weeks went on, I mean, I remember feeling like we didn't know if concerts would ever happen again. I was uh, holding down a regular church job uh, in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area. And uh, the last we gathered for worship, uh, we also live streamed, and that was fine. No clue that that was going to become the mode mm-hmm. the next week, mm-hmm. the next week, and on in. So I had to pivot because all of a sudden there was no church choir. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do? You can't pretend mm-hmm. we're not going to use recorded music because you got to pay for that stuff. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. And so um, my pastor and I finally sat down just to figure out what, do, what can we do now, not only with our time and technical resources, because we had no real equipment yeah. beyond cell phones. Yeah. to record and then produce these these worship experiences. So a budget needed to be created. And then at some point I had to realize I can't just invite in guest artists because they need to be paid <laughs> and we don't have any money. Mm-hmm. So to go back to what you were saying earlier about the not only the audience, but basically the consumer for yeah. whatever it is that we do in this performance, these performance arts, how how are we going to adjust? Mm-hmm. What are we not going to do? And then within all of that, how do we avoid this virus mm-hmm. and still do what we do? Because we were just living life as life was, mm-hmm. unmasked and mm-hmm. unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. Right now, I feel everything moving forward so you know so swiftly, and I feel like as an artist, I need to be always looking forward. And then I have a concern that I'm moving too swiftly past these last three years, Mm -hmm. past the trauma and the transformation and everything else. I just kind of want to put it behind and go. And um, I don't know how long it's going to take to catch up. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Your NPR series, Amplify, did it emerge before COVID or since COVID? I was really struggling in like June, May, June of 2020, just feeling like I had no purpose. I'm a person, I stay very busy, mm-hmm. you know, being at home and not not having any, any idea about what the future held. I felt very lonely and very scared and very sad. And so I started just reaching out to colleagues. And, and the funny thing was just before that, it was February, I think. I'd been in Boston. I was with Helga Davis. We were doing something at the Gardner. And we went back to our hotel one day to just, like, get a break. And Jason Moran was coming off the elevator. So the three of us, who never get to see each other in real life, got to sit together at dinner that night and catch up. And I remember talking with them about how bad our lives were, mm. the constant coming and going and crossing paths and never having connection time. And we were talking about, well, when we're all old and we're retired, we're going to have some like artist colony where we can just, you know, share our thoughts. But I, that had been on my mind about how I, I know these people in my field and I love them and I care about their work and we never get time to connect. So I started just like reaching out because we were all stuck at home. We started videotaping some of those conversations for Sphinx. 
Sphinx is a social justice initiative dedicated to transforming lives through the power of diversity in the arts. And what I was hearing with everyone I was talking to, we were all a mess. We were all so devastated. And the wheels were already starting to turn about, well, what can I do at this time? What are the things that I haven't been doing, like talking to my friends, mm. like writing music, like focusing on this project that I wanted to do, but I've been too committed to do it. So there was all this change happening. There was all this like action starting to take place. And at the same time, you know, the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and all the institutions saying, we're going to make shift now. We're going to use hashtags now. And I had actually just done a Tiny Desk concert for NPR. So we were back and forth about that. And I reached out and I said, I'm having these conversations. And I think there's something happening and it's being captured. And I get it that like the symphony boards need to talk about change that's going to be made systematically and like over time, but this is happening now. Do you want it? see. And so the project just got greenlit really fast. We were doing it on Zoom. When I look back at those conversations now, it's, it is really like a time capsule because, you know, we're talking about the, right, the fear and the, the feeling of loss. And then it just like progresses. Then there's this feeling of hope, like mm -hmm. progress, because all the protests are happening and, you know, we're starting to feel like things can get better. And then the country's falling apart. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's just, I'm so glad that we were able to to do that then. And now, yeah, we've just launched season three. And my premise with, with season three is, is this a new age of renaissance? Mm. Coming out of tragedy and, you know, this kind of like transformative moment in the country, creating a new energy for black art in America. How does this compare to exactly 100 years ago mm -hmm. when the Harlem Renaissance mm -hmm. started? Mm -hmm. Stay tuned. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I love that expression. <laughs> yes. Yes. Are you particularly aware of some interesting trends in black music that over the past three years are more evident or maybe there's there's been more room made for the presentation, for the engagement of this sound, that artist, this venue, collaborations. I've been playing music by Florence Price for about 20 years. There you go. If this is a new name for you, Florence Price was born in 1887 in Little Rock, Arkansas. She is the first female composer of African descent to have a symphonic work performed by a major national symphony orchestra. Despite this notoriety, her music went largely underperformed for decades. Because of people like Laura Downs and others, that is starting to change. About five years ago, I had unearthed all of the solo piano music that no one had played before mm -hmm. with the collaboration of a colleague of mine, John Michael Cooper, a musicologist. He had gone into those archives in Arkansas, gotten the scores out. I was learning them. No one had touched these things for however many years. I took them to one of the major labels. I said, I feel like this would make a great record. Hmm, no, it's probably not commercial. You know, it's probably five years ago. Yeah. Um, I've played the Florence Price Concerto about <laughs> eight times in the last, you know, two years. Mm -hmm. um, the Philadelphia Orchestra is doing this amazing series of Florence Price recordings. So that sort of thing, you know, that finally... Finally, some of this music is getting its due. There's that. 
And I'm really grateful to be part of that. Yes. And, you know, I feel a lot of empathy, regret for the people who have been working in those trenches for so many years and, you know, are, don't get to be part of this awakening. Yeah. So there's that. And I also think um, that what, one of the things that we've been talking about on Amplify is that the feeling of, like, I'm the only one in this room that's starting to go away. Um, I think I'm just more aware of a cohort and a network and a community of artists of color. And that's kind of a huge relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the best thing, the best thing is seeing the next generation. Yes. You know, I was just, as I said, at Sphinx. And here are all these kids who are growing up in a world where they definitely know about Florence Price. from the beginning. I was however many years old when I first heard the name Florence Price. Mm-hmm. Right? So this new reality for young classical musicians, that makes me really happy. Yeah. It's been interesting. I've been a subscriber to... Uh, serious radio for several years. But it's been interesting, particularly in the past three years, the shift that has occurred in their basic programming of classical music. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I think I probably have heard all of the symphonies that have been recorded yeah. of Florence right. Price. And um, you finally hear the music of George Walker. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, here is Here Are Things by Julius Williams from Boston. Mm-hmm. And a whole face of people that in the black community, especially uh, with classical music, if you know the artist, then you know the music, but you don't really hear it outside of wherever they have been for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. But now, because of technology mm-hmm. and because of priorities um, in rooms where decisions are being made about mm-hmm. what consumers may pay attention to. Mm-hmm. It is not unusual to hear uh, some marvelous, marvelous things by Adolphus Hale Stork, yeah. which we never would have heard yeah. 10 years ago. Right. Never. Right, right. You know, two years ago, I founded a label called Rising Sun Music, specifically to make first recordings of all this music that's just been languishing. We've recorded like 60-some pieces of music by you know many of the composers you just named, plus living composers. Mm-hmm. But my idea with that was, let's make these recordings, let's make them really well, because you know that a lot of those archival recordings that we have had no resources behind them, right. so they're not even broadcast quality. So let's make the recordings, let's make them world-class, and let's get them to every single radio station right now. Yeah. Because if you talk to radio programmers, what will they say? Well, you know, we really want to share this music, but we don't have the recordings. If the recordings don't exist, the music doesn't exist. Yeah, well, more so, even even simpler than that. If they if they don't know, just yeah. personally, either because of lack of training or exposure or whatever, that this has been ex- in existence for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Mm-hmm. It's just like a kid coming to Penn State mm-hmm. from... Wherever in Pennsylvania, and all of a sudden, oh my God, had no clue. Yeah, I knew something about jazz. Yeah. But you really didn't know. Yeah. And when you talk about what's happening in Philadelphia in real time Mm -hmm. and in Pittsburgh on the Hill Mm -hmm. in real time, yeah. So we have an awesome responsibility. Yeah. Exactly. There's an opportunity and there's a huge responsibility. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Someone said to me earlier this week, I thought you were retired. I said, well, I thought I was retired, too. <laughs> However, 
I do what I do because not only am I engaged, but I figured out after all these years of teaching and engaging students, um, strategies, and in particular repertoire that transforms so many aspects of their experience. And sometimes it's unexpected because they genuinely did not know. Right. Um, There was, we, we did this wonderful program uh, two weeks ago at our Center for the Performing Arts. I organized what we call Choral Tribute to MLK, which is modeled after a big event at the Kennedy Center that I was a part of 30 years ago. And that auditorium was on fire by the time that concert drew to closure. Mm -hmm. Now, they had been exposed to all kinds of choral music, and in particular, uh, we were we were blessed to bring in the concert choir from Morgan State University. Mm-hmm. They'd never been here. That's a whole different thing to have that historically black college mm-hmm. in, uh, influence there. But then the real guest was Michael Mowenzo and the Shakes mm-hmm. from <laughs> New York City. There was no sitting down. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. no sitting down. Because, as you know... Our music, our culture, it is participatory. No one's right. sitting down and the music is washing over them. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's not how we respond. Right. The same way that I'm opposed to telling the story of Beethoven as like this genius mm. who like lived on a marble pedestal, right? <laughs> I'm also opposed to telling the story of Florence Price as, you know, this brave, courageous person and then there was racism, and then she wrote a symphony. Like, I think we really need to stop telling these one-dimensional stories yeah. about artists of color. Like, yeah. we really need to know the fullness of the individual. That's so important. It's just um, stagnant otherwise. Mm-hmm. Here's a funny story. So um, this summer I was at the Brevard Music Center, and I had the unbelievable privilege of getting to know George Shirley. Mm. George was there, and we got to do a couple of songs together. And we did this talk back after a concert. There was somebody in the audience who asked George how he got to sing at the Met. And it was a long-winded conversation, a long-winded question. And really, I think the desired answer was, I was, a, you know, a lone, courageous individual, and then there was racism, but I got to sing at the Met. But George listened to this long question which ended, you know, so tell us, how did you end up at the Metropolitan Opera House? And he sat there for a minute and he goes, well, well, I auditioned. <laughs> you know, and I really want to just focus the lens on, like, what was accomplished, what was the community and the network, because nothing happened in isolation. Nothing. Nothing. You know, there mm-hmm. was, yeah, there was technically a first person to do such and such, but there were all these people around that person and before that person and after that person, so to really, like, reexamine the lineage and the history so that we understand, you know, what this body of work represents. Mm-hmm. My mom was a musician, so that's where this thing was really born in me. And, and as, as you shared earlier, uh, I asked at age three, because she was actually studying piano mm. at that point, but still a church musician. I said, Mom, can I learn how to play the piano? No, boy. You're too young. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So I just went away. But, of course, I'm still attending mm-hmm. to whatever it is that I hear. And I, I, uh, I remember the very first pipe organ that I, you felt the vibrations, mm-hmm. not even knowing what was happening 
orally, tonally, blah, 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 blah. But I stopped asking her just before I turned seven, I think it was. And she thought to herself, hmm, maybe he's serious. (laughs) And her deal was she was not going to be my teacher. (laughs) Okay. Found a teacher. The rest is history. Now, the blessing as life has moved along is that many of my mentors from my formative years and into college, university, are still alive. And I'm not a young person. Many have passed. But I'm interested, uh, as far as your aspects of your lineage is concerned, who has been with you for the long term as far as your, your people are concerned, you know? Yeah. You know, I have a kind of a sad answer to that. Mm. I mean, honestly, I don't have anybody. Wow. Which is why I think I'm so deeply committed to mentorship and, you know, um, and embedding myself in a community. No, um, let's see. I mean, early piano teachers kind of came and went. Mm-hmm. Um, some are not any longer living. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't have... Aside from, like, maybe my very first piano teacher when I was tiny, who I think instilled this fascination for me with, like, the storytelling part of music. I think that's what she did. Mm -hmm. But after that, I mean, I learned many things from many teachers. But no one was there saying this, like, like, embrace who you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Learn who you are. It was very much me fighting against that toxic thing of, like, well, if you want to be a pianist, then the goal here is to be the best pianist in the world. And it's, like, competitive. And you're in the hall of the conservatory, and everyone's playing the same etude in every practice room. And it just feels like this echo chamber. And I think if I hadn't dug in Mm -hmm. with inquiry for myself about, like, who am I? How do I fit in here? What do I want to do? And what do I have to give? I don't think I would have been happy. But that was me. Yeah, yeah. One of my mentors said to me, Leach, let me tell you something. You're going to have to know our music and be better at it than anybody. Mm. But you're also going to have to know their music (laughs) and be better at it than anybody. She did not lie. Mm -hmm. She did not lie. Yeah. Because that's been my journey. And um, one of the things that I, um, I don't fight, but inform others that uh, refer to my choir in the Penn State School of Music as Penn State's Gospel Choir. No, we're not. Mm-hmm. There was a student-directed gospel choir at Penn State, but we are Music 93 in the School of Music, and we sing secular and sacred music from the African and African-American choral idioms. However, we do sing traditional and contemporary gospel music, and we will wear you out (laughs) with it while doing all the other stuff (laughs) that we do because that's what's required. You know, you just don't label us as this because once you label us, we can't grow. We can't experience. So Mm -hmm. I've raised generations of musicians that understand what not only what that means, but how that functions. Yeah. In their journey, in what they do, and as they are mentoring who's coming behind them. Which goes back to fullness of self. Yes. Right? An understanding of lineage. We're not alone. 
Mm-mm. I love the recording project. Yeah. That's so crucial. <sighs> so crucial because mm-hmm. you know, and you we've seen it all our lives, something can be commissioned. Yes. And premiered. Yes. And it just goes away. Yeah. As we all move forward post-COVID or whatever's coming next, what do you see differently for yourself? You know, I think what I've gained is a real sense of purpose and, like, self-awareness about what is important. Mm. So for the first time in my professional life, I don't feel like I'm doing all these various things. I feel like I'm doing a thing. Ah, You know, that makes sense, right? Because what I'm doing on stage is directly reflected with what I'm doing on recordings and on the air and, you know, with mentorship of young people and writing and, like, hosting the show. It's all really connected, and it's really all about an exploration of fullness of self, um, you know, as that translates into diversity, although I like, can't even stand the word anymore, but, mm-hmm. you know, the breadth of, of what there is in American music. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be my thing that okay. I'm going to leave behind. I mean, at a certain point, I guess during my, like, pandemic depression, you know, you start questioning, like, music, who cares, Right. I, and I have no concert, so what do I even? What am I even doing on this earth? And I all of a sudden realized that even what I've accomplished till now, like if I were done tomorrow, these recordings that I've that I've created, and I think that the you know the work that I've done, the sort of the research and the advocacy and the bringing things to light, like that's awesome. Yeah, it's really good, and uh, that that makes me so happy. Then when I look back at my you know little my like whatever teenager self like stressing out at the piano and just feeling like I feel so fortunate Mm -hmm. to have found a place, a voice, a vision, and to feel like what I do is meaningful, valuable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before you leave Penn State, you're going to do two completely different presentations. One focused on the music of Scott Joplin. And then you're going to perform piano works of African-American women composers. Talk to the audience a little bit. (laughs) Well, Joplin Joplin is um, really fascinating. So, you know, like everyone, I learned to play a couple little Joplin tunes when I was very little. They were like a treat, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I remember my mom took us to see the movie, The Sting, and like reruns at the old uh, art house theater in San Francisco. Um, and then I didn't do Joplin. I was doing serious music, yeah, right? Right, right? But in all of this research about American music and the history of it and who made it, I all of a sudden realized, whoa, this needs a second look. Um, so last year I put out an album called Reflections, Scott mm-hmm. Joplin Reconsidered. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting learning so much more about his life and his music. Because I think that two things have been said about Joplin until now. Like, he was the greatest classical composer you never heard of, right? Mm-hmm. Or he was the king of ragtime with, like, you know, the boater hat and the suspender. Um, but to me, what's beautiful and intensely important is that he was a person who blended these, two, these traditions, you know, that he his formation was in classical music, that he loved it, that mm-hmm. he was disappointed in the end by his 
inability to, you know, have a presence in that field. But he took all of that, and he also took the reins of this new thing that was developing during his time called Ragtime, mm-hmm. and he made something so extraordinary. And that's what I love the most about American music is, you know, all the places where things come together. So it was really a pleasure to put the record together. There are a lot of the solo rags, and then we did arrangements of some of the tunes um, with, like, a chamber ensemble. Um found an art song of his that had never been published or, or recorded and did that with Will Liverman. Mm. And uh, then the last track on the album is um, Real Slow Drag from Trimanisha with the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. It's very eclectic and weird. And uh, yeah, so I'll be sharing some of that with everyone today. And then some music by three female African-American composers, Margaret Bonds and Hazel Scott and Nkero Okoye. Yes. Yeah. So three generations, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Hazel Scott. Hazel Scott. I met her grandson. I met her son and her grandson. Wow. Yeah, I was playing um, a concert at uh, with the Boston Pops. This is like four years ago. And they did... I had I had transcribed her. You know, she has a couple of original compositions. I had transcribed one for solo piano, and then they did an arrangement with the orchestra. This piece called "Idol," and uh, her grandson came with his family and brought us these pictures mm. of his grandma. It's really very Yay. cool. You've been so gracious to allow me to pick your brain on <laughs> a whole lot of different things in order to come back to you. And you are the point of departure and the point of discovery and affirmation in all that you continue to do, not only because it's important for you to do it, but it's something that also motivates others Mm. to consider the realm of possibility because in many cases they just didn't know. Yeah. that's eventually, you won't be able to say that because hopefully aspects of our world and of our culture, and in particularly uh, music from African-American culture, will be celebrated for the unique, engaging, uh, transformative encounter that it provides with all the retentions from African culture all the retentions from African-American, culture, Caribbean, whatever. It's mm-hmm. just endless yeah. from that standpoint. So thank you, thank you for allowing us to have these moments to just get to know you, thank you. a little bit better. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the In Their Own Words podcast. Join us next time when we meet Michael Moenzo, an award-winning creative artist and leader of Moenzo and the Shakes. Michael was born in Sierra Leone and moved to London during his teen years. He shared the stage with James Brown and later became the curator for jazz at Lincoln Center. I was the artistic, creative, no sports, 
Just the music, just the music, just the music. <laughs> boarding school's forcing you to do the cricket. You have to do it. Boarding school's forcing you to go out in the rain, in the snow, in the sleet, and play the horrible rugby. You're doing it. Yes, cross country, you're good at it, Michael, and you do you win the awards and the competitions. But all I want to listen to is Benjamin Britten and Edward Elgar and Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> and James Brown and Louis Armstrong and Sister Rosetta Farb and Clark Ward, and I'm good. And don't take me out to do no gym stuff. <laughs> Wow. So you were a rebel at an early yeah. age. I'm Charles Duma. Thanks for listening. In Their Own Words is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you.